We'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. We'll remind you that last week in chapter 13, we saw the introduction of the beast system, which is the, the devil's method and has been his method from the beginning of world domination through government. We also saw another beast rise from the sea of mankind, the sea of humanity, that the Bible identifies in another place as the, as the false prophet. Now, you may remember that, uh, that these events that were spoken of in chapter 13 are primarily surrounding and certainly begin with the midpoint of the tribulation period. We know that the Antichrist, who begins at the beginning of the tribulation period, the seven-year period of tribulation, presents himself as a man of peace, or he operates in a diplomatic manner during the first three and a half years. But at the three and a half year mark, he changes. And even though he's made a peace treaty with Israel, he reneges on that treaty and attacks Israel. He becomes a man of war, according to what the scriptures say. And the Bible even says that the devil, who identifies in chapter 12 as the dragon, the great dragon, provides some means of supernatural ability, greater supernatural ability for the Antichrist to dominate and to control the world, or at least attempt to. He never succeeds. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation, specifically the seven-year period of tribulation, is the failure of the devil and the Antichrist. A lot of people look at it as the, something to be afraid of, but the whole book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus and how that the power of God overcomes the devil at every turn. So we see the uh, introduction of the beast system in chapter 13. We'll talk more about that as we go in the next few chapters. And then we see the false prophet. Now the false prophet is also called a beast. There are three things, three, well, one thing and two people that are identified in the book of Revelation as a beast. One is the beast system, the world government system. The second is the Antichrist, and the third is the false prophet. Now, you've got to know which one he's talking about and see the context of who he's speaking of when the word beast is used so you make sure to rightly divide the truth. But the, uh, at the last half of the tribulation period, the mark of the beast is instituted and in in an image is set up to worship the beast system, the, grow, the world government system. The Antichrist's ultimate goal is to proclaim himself God and to be God over the earth. That's a problem when there's already a God who's greater than all. And so it's, a, it's a, an account of the Antichrist's purposes being thwarted and detoured and destroyed throughout the entirety of the book. So we'll start in chapter 14. Again, this is the, the time period that's being spoken of at the, mid, it's the midpoint of the tribulation period or the last half of the three and a half years, the last half of the seven years, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads, 
And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but or except the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. The first thing that chapter 14 talks about is the 144,000. We'll remind you that earlier in the, um, the study of Revelation, we found that on the first day of the tribulation period, we know it's the first day because that's where the countdown starts. The number of days, the number of years, the number of months are identified specifically from that point in time when Russia and its coalition armies, Iran and other predominantly Islamic countries make up the coalition, attack Israel and God destroys not only their armies, but the majority, 83% of the countries and the people of those countries that attack Israel. The Bible tells us, and we don't know exactly how this happens, we know the angels have a lot to do with it. The Bible indicates to us that the angels, at one point uh, earlier in the study, have identified that they have not yet finished sealing the 144,000. So they have something to do with it. The work of angels has something to do with their, uh, their ministry or their entering into ministry. Nevertheless, on the first day of tribulation during the destruction of Israel's enemies, Russia and its coalition army, and predominantly the, the active Islamic countries of the world, the Bible tells us that God selects 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel for a total of 144,000 that become evangelists. And during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, they get a great multitude of people saved. Now, it gives us some more information about it that we just read in the first five verses of chapter 14, how that they were virgins, young men who were never married. We assume they were men because it identifies them as men. I don't know that the Bible could speak specifically about them being men and not being defiled with women if any of them were women themselves. And so anyway, it tells us that the 144,000 carry out the work of evangelism on the earth during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now remember when John sees these things, the church has already been caught up into heaven. Well, if the church has been caught up into heaven, then who is going to preach the gospel to the remaining people here on the earth I don't want to be left behind to do that do you I mean I want people to be saved but I'm not willing to go through the tribulation for it but God picks 144,000 Jewish evangelists who begin their ministry and continue for the first three and a half maybe a little bit more than the first three and a half years of the tribulation but then the Bible tells us that they're caught up into heaven too We've said it before, but I think it bears repetition. We have the idea, we meaning the church world at large, has the idea that if there's a rapture, there's only one of them. But there's either six or seven raptures identified in the Bible, depending on how you count them. 
And the Old Testament tells us that Enoch was raptured. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. Well, that'd be a rapture, wouldn't it? The Bible tells us Elijah was raptured. He saw the angels driving the chariots of fire. And they took him up into heaven and Elisha watched him go. Well, that would be a rapture, wouldn't it? Jesus was raptured. The Bible says while the angels stood with him, he was caught up in a cloud and went up into heaven out of their sight. Well, that's a rapture, isn't it? The church is raptured. The beginning of the book of Revelation, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and he heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet that said, come up here. Well, that would imply a change of location, wouldn't it? And immediately he was caught up into heaven and he witnessed all these things and he witnessed the church standing before the throne of God. What is that if not a rapture? The Bible tells us furthermore that at the halfway point of the tribulation there's a great multitude which includes 144,000. It's caught up into heaven too. Now this is the reason why some people think that the rapture is at the midpoint of the tribulation. Well, if there was only one rapture, they might be right. But there's not just one. The Bible says that God has not appointed his church under wrath, his children under wrath. And the tribulation is identified as the wrath of God. Well, if he's not appointed us to wrath and the wrath of God begins at the tribulation period, then we've got to get out of here before the tribulation begins, which is exactly what John sees. So the great multitude is caught up. That's another rapture. The Bible tells us at the end of the tribulation period, the two witnesses are caught up. They're raptured. Now, I've just given you six. What about the seven? Well, depending on whether or not you count John as being raptured to receive the revelation that we know of as the book of Revelation. If you want to count that one, then, he, then that's number seven. If you don't, then we've got six. At any rate... We know that God is in the business of catching his people away. God's a protecting God. Someone once said that since the marriage supper of the Lamb involves the church and takes place probably about the midpoint of tribulation, that the church going through the tribulation period would be like the father of the bride, or the father of the groom rather, beating up the bride before the wedding. Let that sink in a little bit. Now, if that happened in real life, in a literal sense, we'd think they're marrying into the wrong family, wouldn't we? Thank God we're married into the right family. Verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. And to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Now stop and think about what that means. We know that during the church age. God has established the foolishness of preaching. To be the means whereby the gospel of salvation is sent forth into the earth. You may remember in Acts chapter 10 when the angel appears unto Cornelius. He doesn't preach to him the gospel. He tells him where to go hear it or how to hear it. He says send a Joppa for one called Peter. In the house of Simon the Tanner. Why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius and his household how to get saved? Because that's not the work of the angels during the church age. 
But notice in verse 6, it tells us after the church age has ended, which ends when the rapture of the church takes place, before the tribulation begins, the ministry of angels changes. Now, identified specifically at least at the second half of the tribulation, we don't know about the first half. We don't have any evidence that it takes place during the first three and a half years. But at the midpoint of the tribulation period, the Bible specifically identifies that the gospel is preached by angels flying through the air. Now, folks, I want you to keep something in mind. The devil's purpose is to dominate the world and control the world. He wants to fight against the church, but the church is taken away and transformed and translated into the presence of God before the angel can do his greatest work on the earth. Then he fights against the 144,000 and the great multitude because they're withstanding his purpose and God snatches them away. Then the only thing that's left on the earth is the remnant of Israel, those unsaved Jews that have not received the Lord. And they're hidden away. He tries to make war against them. And they're hidden away, airlifted, maybe even by America, into the wilderness, into a secret place where the devil can't get to him. The devil's not real good about killing the people of God. We've got a few examples of martyrs throughout the history of the church, and then there'll be more during the tribulation. But overall, the devil's pretty weak when it comes to killing the people of God. God's a great protector. So now as the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation goes into the temple of, of, uh, in Jerusalem, which means it's going to have to be rebuilt, sits in the seat of his headquarters there that he establishes in the temple and proclaims himself as God. What kind of God can't control angels flying through the air telling people that he's not God? Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of people still fall for his stuff. A lot of people are still deceived. But God gives mankind, the remainder of mankind, every opportunity to not be taken in by the work of the Antichrist. So the angels fly through the air preaching the everlasting gospel, saying with a loud voice, verse 7, Fear God, not the Antichrist. Not the governmental system that's known as the beast. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Please notice that in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the angels are warning people the time is at an end. This is before they receive the mark of the beast. He's warning them not to. The hour of his judgment has come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, not the Antichrist. No matter what he says about himself. And there followed another angel saying Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now at the time that John writes this, Babylon is in ruins and had been since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. The city of Babylon was destroyed. There have been uh, a couple of weak attempts to rebuild the city of Babylon. But it failed. Now, there's a teaching in the body of Christ that says the city of Babylon will have to be rebuilt in order for it to be destroyed. 
But what would be the purpose of that? The Antichrist doesn't set up his headquarters in Babylon. So Babylon either means another city or it means another thing if it doesn't mean literally the ancient city of Babylon, the headquarters of the Assyrian Empire. So what does it mean? Chapter 17 identifies Babylon specifically as the religious system. It calls it the harlot, the great whore of Babylon in another place, which I always thought was Madonna. But I could be wrong. (laughs) Nevertheless, the Bible identifies it as the religious system that the devil has used from the beginning of his attempt at world domination to control people. Now, you may remember, excuse me, you may remember one of the greatest examples, perhaps the greatest example that we see in evidence of this is in Egypt because the Bible gives us more information about Egypt concerning the deliverance of Israel than any of the other world kingdoms. You remember when uh, Moses was sent to Pharaoh to say, let my people go. He asked him, Moses asked God, what signs shall I give them to know so that they'll know that God has sent me? He asked him what he has in his hand, which was a stick. Tells him to throw the stick down and it turns into a serpent. Well, you remember when Moses does that before Pharaoh. Pharaoh just causes two magicians, sorcerers, and they perform the same event, the same miracle. Now, I don't know exactly how that worked. But the Bible says that the magicians' staffs or sticks turned into snakes too. Now, Moses' snake ate theirs up which shows us the power of God will always follow up the power of the devil. It's always the greater power. God's power is always the greater power. But my point is very simply this. With every one of the world's dominant world systems or kingdoms, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Persians, or the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then lastly, the resurrected Roman Empire. Every one of those have employed occult powers to control the people through fear. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me about this is that Islam does not qualify. There's no mysticism to Islam. If you ask a Muslim or the Muslim world, where's the sign, where's the power? In Islam, they'll always say it's the Quran. They say the beauty and the poetry of the book is the mystical quality of their religion. Well, if you've ever read the Quran, you've got to be high on drugs to think it's pretty. It's the most convoluted thing that you've ever read in your life. I don't recommend that you read it. If you're mature spiritually, you might be able to get by with it. But if you're not, the devil will take advantage of you. But I have read it several times, as a matter of fact. And it's as as confusing to me now as it ever was. My point is very simply this. With all the trouble that Islam is producing in the world today, and I know it's not 
politically correct to say this, which has never motivated me much, but nevertheless. <laughs> there are countries, many countries, governments in our present-day world that want to pretend that, that Islam is a religion of peace. But history shows that Islam is a religion of war. Its foundation is hatred. And its purpose is domination through fear. But there is no mystical quality to it whatsoever. There's no lying wonders that cause people to be sucked into Islam. Now that's not to say that every Muslim is, is uh, warlike. I'm sure there are a lot of Muslims that are peace-loving as individuals. Just like there are a lot of Christians that take the part of the Bible that they like and live by that and ignore the rest of it that they don't like. But the purpose of the, uh, the foundation of Christianity is the new birth through Jesus' sacrifice. And the purpose of Christianity is to show forth the love of God in our hearts that comes into us when we're born again. Now, that doesn't mean every Christian walks in love. But it doesn't change the foundation and the purpose of Christianity. In the same way, for a Muslim to be peace-loving as an individual, that doesn't change. I'm glad for that. But that doesn't change the foundation of the purpose of Islam, which is domination through fear. So Islam does not qualify as the harlot or the Babylon system. And it'll be dealt with in a major, major way in one 24-hour period that begins the tribulation. God all but wipes Islam off the face of the earth. But the angel flies through the air, crying, Babylon is fallen, fallen, that great city, because she made all nations, it's talking about the kingdoms of the world, she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image, if you fall for the Antichrist idea for idolatry, and this mark of the beast thing, whereby everybody is the only means whereby people will be able to buy and sell and participate in commerce. If you worship the beast and his image and receive the mark in your forehead or in your hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, age upon age, without end, in other words. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast in his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Now there's a section of the church, modern day church, that says that there is no literal hell. That hell is just an idea to incentivize people to turn to the Lord. Well, these angels don't seem to know that. Because they talk about a literal lake of fire. They talk about a literal age upon age, an unending time where there is no rest, a place of torment. Hell is literal, folks. Now, notice what he said in uh, 
whatever verse it was that we just finished reading. Uh, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. The angel is flying through the air during the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Warning people not to worship the image of the beast, the governmental system. Or to take the mark of the beast in their heads or their, fo- or their hands. In other words, the angel is, is warning people, unsaved people, not to participate in what the devil sets up through the Antichrist, but to rebel against it. And it says that this is the reason that we should be patient and keep the commandments of God knowing full well that our eternity, our age upon age is paradise. is the presence of the Lord. You remember when Paul said, be not weary in well-doing for you shall reap if you faint not. Why is there such a temptation for us to give up? I've always said, and I believe it more now than I ever have, that the greatest enemy the devil has is time. In heaven there is no time. But the devil uses time against you. He'll use time against you in this way, in many ways really, but one of the main ways is to show you that because things haven't happened as quickly as you thought they would or as quickly as you believe for them to happen, that it means something is wrong with your faith or that God's word isn't true. Well, how do you combat that? You've got to have something to keep you going. John says, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that our future eternity, our home, with our Heavenly Father should be that which is the stabilizing force for us to maintain our patience to continue to do well and keep the commandments of God. Remember John, um, um, oh, what's his name? Paul. You get us talking about some people and forget about what other people's names are. Paul said that through faith and patience we inherit the promises. James said that when patience has her perfect work, we'll not be lacking anything that we believe God for or had our hope in. We should focus in these last days, perhaps more than ever before, on the source of our patience being our eternal home. Because folks, time is short. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works and do follow them. For their works do follow them. Now I want you to to realize that since this is the tribulation midpoint, then there will be people that get saved in the last three and a half years. Otherwise you couldn't die in the Lord. There's no Christians left on the earth at this point in time. The church has been caught away. The great multitude and the 144,000 have been caught away. 
The angels are performing the work of ministry by flying through the air and preaching the gospel. But that will get some people saved. Now, there's nowhere in the scripture that says that the people that will be saved in the last three and a half years are caught up into heaven and have their own rapture. I would suggest to anybody in the world that's not saved, don't wait for the last load. (laughs) Yet there's still a blessing. Blessed are they that die in the Lord. For they shall come to the end of their rest. Or they come to the end of their labors and shall rest. In other words, the indication may be it's better to die in the last three and a half years of the tribulation than live through it. Verse 14, and I looked and beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his simple sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now what reaping is this? Well, the Bible doesn't identify a specific, either a specific point in time or a specific group that's reaped. So most Bible scholars, at least the ones I have the most confidence in, recognize this as a symbolic reaping of the earth that includes not only the rapture, but also the great multitude and 144,000. Those that are caught up under the throne of God during the entirety of the book of Revelation, or the entirety of the tribulation period. If that's not the case, then there's another, another reaping, another catching away that's not specifically or fully identified. Now, that's possible. But it doesn't make sense to me that that would be the case because he's just said, blessed are they that die in the Lord during the last three and a half years. Well, if they're going to be raptured, why is there, why are they... Sh- why should we recognize that they're going to die in the Lord? You see the point? So we see what I believe to be a symbolic reaping of the earth before the next few verses that give us a preview of Armageddon. In other words, what it means to me is that God has received all of his people unto himself. Before the great and terrible day of the end comes. Verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. So this is going to be a different reaping. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire. And cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle. Saying thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth. For her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Well, that wouldn't be the church. Wouldn't be the people of God in any way whatsoever. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. 
Now, this is a preview of the Battle of Armageddon, which says that the the, uh, 200-million-man army from the east will meet up with the Antichrist's forces, whatever armies there are in the part of the world that he is dominating and ruling over, and fight against the Lord on the last day of the tribulation period. And it tells us, the preview thereof, tells us that the blood shall come up as high as the horse's bridles, which would be somewhere around here or maybe a little higher, for the space of 213 square miles. That's impossible to even fathom. But I would suggest to you (coughs) that since that happens on the last day of the tribulation period, no wonder God has to create a new heaven and a new earth. Now remember the plague that brings this about is in Zechariah chapter 14 where it says the flesh shall melt off of people's faces. In a moment of time, according to the word of God, the Bible says in another place that this destruction comes about by the sword that comes from Jesus' mouth. That's the word. In one moment of time, these 200 million men from the east and their rulers and the armies of the Antichrist are destroyed. Now, folks, I want you to get something here. Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Well, let me just say it this way. The devil wants to make you think that there's a great struggle that's going on between his power and the power of God. In accepting that premise, we must accept that the devil is, if not God's equal, at least a worthy adversary. That's not even true. He's certainly not his equal. He's not even a worthy adversary. In one moment of time, Everything that the devil has been building up to for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Since the beginning of the fall of man. Everything he's worked for, worked toward, is destroyed. In one moment of time. Now, think of it like this. Is God saving his power for the end? To show it on an unsaved world? But denying that power or the greatness of that power, the power in the same measure to his children? Would you do that to your kids? Would you be better to somebody else than you would be to your own children? Would you use your resources in a greater way for somebody outside of your family than you would your own? Well, nobody that's a good person would do that. Jesus used that same example several times in the, during the gospel accounts. He said, if you know how to be good parents to your children, how much more will your heavenly father be good to you? What I want you to see, folks, is that there is at least as great or greater power available to you through the word of God as what brings about this end of life in a moment of time. Chapter 15. 
And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. The Bible indicates to us that the last month of the tribulation period, the last month of the seven-year period, is the worst of all because of the seven plagues that are poured out. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, here's another reference to the church, born of the Holy Ghost, which is symbolized by fire, standing before the throne of God. Now, I want you to get the, the uh, import of why it says what it says the way it says it. When he starts talking about the great wrath of God being poured out at the very end of the tribulation period, the last month of the tribulation, the first thing he identifies is the church is in heaven. That's a recurring theme. God wants you to get this fact. The church is in heaven when this stuff takes place. So I saw a sea of glass mingled with fire. And, and means something else. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast. And over the image and over his mark. And over the number of his name. Stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So it's talking about not only the church, which was raptured before the tribulation begins, but also those that were saved during the tribulation period. They're standing in heaven. Now, during the tribulation period would mean up until the great multitude and the 144,000 are raptured. We don't know what happens to the people after that. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, and thou king of saints. So notice the the, uh, predominantly Jewish nature of this great multitude in the 144,000. They're redeemed. They're saved, just like we are. But the church is primarily the the modern-day church. Those that are raptured at the end of the church age is a predominantly Gentile church. Even though there will be scores of people from every nation and every tribe that will join the 144,000 to make up the great multitude. The Bible identifies them predominantly as a Jewish group or gathering. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name. For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. What nations? See, again, the church has perpetrated the idea that the Antichrist is going to take over the whole world. And he doesn't. The Antichrist won't take over the whole world any more than the Roman Empire dominated the whole world. Now, we say that they were the world rulers and dominated the world or controlled the world. But the world that was known at that point in time was predominantly the territory that surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. Or the Mediterranean and the Aegean Sea. That's the... the uh, world kingdom that will be resurrected America will not be dominated by the antichrist South America shall not be dominated by the antichrist Russia, Asia China shall not be dominated by the antichrist and all these nations that make up territories outside of the resurrected Roman empire so when the angel cries and the people are singing a new song Notice a part of that song has to do with those who are left on the earth, which means they have to be unsaved, but are not under the domination of the Antichrist or the beast system. 
And there will be lots of people, millions of people, that fall in that category. That's why the Bible says in the millennial reign of Jesus after the tribulation takes place, after the battle of Armageddon, Jesus sets up a rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And every nation comes to worship him. Every nation is required to worship God, worship before the throne. But it says that Jesus rules the world with a rod of iron. If everybody's a willing worshiper, there's no ruling with a rod of iron necessary. But there will be multitudes of people, millions of people that are unsaved, still unsaved, that will have to recognize and acknowledge that God is the creator of the, the world and Jesus is the victor. The Bible says you and I will reign with him during that thousand year period. Better are getting toughened up now. If you're going to help him rule with a rod of iron, no snowflakes allowed. Verse 5, and after this I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in purple and white linen, or pure, I'm sorry, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. These are the last seven plagues that will take place the last month of the tribulation period. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And we're going to quit there this morning because chapter 16 starts talking about the plagues and those need to be dealt with in a little bit more detail than what we have time for this morning. But you know, folks, the Bible says the word of God is a living thing. Every time I read a book of the Bible, I get something more from it than I ever got before. And that's especially true of Revelation. And the thing that the Lord keeps dealing with me about in this, this time, is the power and the authority that he's given to the church. Now think about this. As great as the Egyptian kingdom was, the Egyptian empire was, as great as the Babylonian empire was, as great as the Medo-Persian Empire was, as great as the Greek Empire was, as great as the Roman Empire was. And everybody realized that no man could stand before the face of any of those rulers or the deeds of those kingdoms. As great as they were, as much as a terror as they were to their enemies, the devil couldn't do a thing once the church was born. Remember the, the vision or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had where his great image that represented these world kingdoms were smashed by a stone that was not cut out with hands. That stone was Jesus. It was the church. Now the devil's tried to resurrect his kingdom several times. I think we would have to recognize that Hitler was certainly working under the influence of the devil and bringing about the destruction that he brought upon the earth. And his purpose, stated purpose, was to dominate the world. But he couldn't do it. The reason he couldn't do it, the predominant reason he couldn't do it, was because a Christian nation stood up against him. 
that was America. There have been other attempts, probably to lesser degrees, where the devil is trying to do the same thing again. He's only got one playbook, folks. It's not like he keeps doing different things and coming up with different means of attack. It's always the same means of attack. It's all he's got. Now, if the devil, who's operating in, well, at least in one sense, is operating in greater power now than he ever has, if he cannot bring about that work, can't even reveal his man to the earth, just because we're here, And I would submit to you folks that it's not because the church is active. It's not because the church is great or strong in prayer. It's certainly not because the church worldwide is operating according to the truth of the word. Or believing God to make good on his promises. The devil can't do anything. He can't do his stuff because we're here. What could we do if we did live up to who Jesus made us to be? Furthermore, if the very presence of the church keeps the devil from being able to do his work to its greatest degree, then what do you think it means when Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 10 and verse 17, or verse 19, I should say, Behold, I give unto you authority. To tread on serpents and scorpions. And over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall by any means hurt you. Because folks the Bible tells us specifically. That God gave no greater power to the church world at large. Than he gave to you as an individual member of the church. When I was in Bible school. I came across a book. Well, others told me about it, and so I read it. It's about a certain gentleman. It's really not important that you know his name. But how that God used him during World War II in prayer. He had a little Bible school. When I say little, I mean it was like a dozen or 15 people. And they just committed themselves to pray during the war. Now, this man in his Bible school was in England. And it would be amazing, or was amazing, to read of the accounts, which were told much after the fact, about how that God would lead them to pray for certain battles, certain attacks, before the enemy made them. And then, of course, news wasn't instant in those days like it is in our days. Couldn't check Facebook to see what was going on which might have been to their advantage. But then they'd read sometime later about a battle that they had prayed for. And he kept journals of the times that God would give them something to pray. And he would give them enough specific information so that they would be able to see what they had prayed about. And most of the times there were things where the the battle went toward the... uh, sort of victory for their side but there were sometimes a few times not many I guess but a few 
where the battle went against them. But the battle was greatly lessened or the results of the, the enemy's victory was greatly lessened because of something that happened during the middle of the battle that either turned the tide or caused them to pick up and turn around, retreat. I was fascinated by those things in a much different way then than I would be now or am now because back then I was excited about the results. It gave me goosebumps. But now it causes me to realize the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us. Now it causes me to recognize how real and how true it is where John wrote, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Now, what I'm trying to get across to you as I close this morning is very simply this. That doesn't just mean greater is he that's in you, the Holy Ghost, the power of God that is in you to keep the devil from doing against you what he wants to do. But the greater one is in you as an individual to such a degree that if you were the only Christian left on the earth, The devil still couldn't do his stuff. He still couldn't resurrect the beast system. He still couldn't reveal the Antichrist. Because there is sufficient power in you as an individual to stop every work of the devil. Whether you ever use it or not. I think we ought to use it. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Now open your eyes. I'm not ready to pray yet. (laughs) One final thought. It's early yet, so I'll take another minute. One final thought. Why does God go into such detail to tell us the events that take place, the plagues, the happenings, and so forth, when we're not even left here on the earth? It'd be one thing if we were going to go through the tribulation period where God says, all right, now this is going to happen the first day. This is going to happen during the first three and a half years. This is going to happen at the midpoint, and this is going to happen shortly thereafter. Because I want you to be able to keep time very well. That would make sense. But why does the Bible not just say, and the church was caught up into heaven where we experienced the marriage supper of the Lamb, And a lot of bad stuff happened for seven years. That's all that would really concern me as an individual if I'm in heaven. Isn't that true for you too? Why does he tell us so much and give us so much detail about the things that happen on the earth? As a matter of fact, there is more information given to us about the things that are going to happen on the earth where we're not even yet at anymore than the things that happened during heaven when we are there for those seven years? Well, the answer is simply this. Because heaven is occupied with the things that happen on the earth. Not just during the tribulation period, but now for you. Remember Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Notice how everything has to start on the earth, not heaven. Because God's family 
was left on the earth. What I want you to get is this. The things that you may be tempted to think that God doesn't care about, he's occupied with. So when he says he will not leave you comfortless, when he says he'll never leave you nor forsake you, that means he cares about the things that you care about. That means heaven is occupied with the events that are taking place in your life. And don't ever doubt that. It continues even for those that are left that might become part of God's family after we're caught up into heaven. How much more should it be so now when his children, you and me, are left here? Now let's pray. Father, thank you so much for revealing to us your plan, your purpose that which will take place at the end. We're reminded of the words of Jesus who said we are to occupy till he comes. Lord, quicken us by the greater one within that we may occupy in authority that we may occupy with the preaching of the gospel that we may take an active role in stopping the devil's activities here and now against mankind against our country and against the body of Christ we're beginning to see Lord in a greater way than ever before what you meant when you said greater is he that's in you and he that's in the world. Use us, Lord, to pray. Let us have the same heart as the individual and in the Bible school students that prayed against the work of the devil in World War II. I don't believe you would do that for them and not do it for us, Lord. So we commit ourselves to be used. to take authority in the name of Jesus to block the work of the enemy against our nation against our world and against our family members in the body of Christ show us Lord the things that we need to pray for give us utterance in other tongues but also bring to our understanding so we'll see the greatness of your power on display. Father, give us a heart for the lost like we've never had before. You said, Lord, that if we would ask you, you'd give us the heathen for an inheritance. We're asking you, Father. Make whatever change in us is necessary that we might be consumed with saving the world before the tribulation comes. We ask you these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus. We thank you that you hear and answer our prayer, Father. 
But we ask you for something more. These prayers, though great, seem so small. We seem to ourselves to be so small concerning these events and these things. So we have to rely on your word. The ten spies saw themselves as grasshoppers, but that's all they saw. The two saw themselves as able because you said so. So we ask you, Father, that we might grow and increase in strength, that we might grow and increase in knowledge of who we are, that we might grow and increase in faith to stand upon your word no matter what it looks like but no matter how we feel. We pray, Father, that the glory of God would be seen in the earth in the last days. Let it be a glory that sweeps multitudes, millions, into the kingdom of God. Let it be a glory that causes healing to flow like a river. Let it be a glory that people can see. Let it be a glory It causes people to know that Jesus is risen. That's our prayer, Father. That's our desire. In Jesus' name. Can you agree with that? Amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand. Say it with me. The Lord is good to me. And his mercy endures forever. Amen. Well, come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School. Have a great day and you're dismissed.